You may be seated. Good morning. Always good to see those of you who are here worshiping with us for the first time. We have information we would like to give you, but we need to know where you're sitting. So if you, this is a first visit for you, if you haven't already received the packet out in the narthex, please raise your hand and our uh, greeters will make sure that you get that packet. If this is your first visit to our church or recent visitor and you've not received this packet, just take a moment, keep your hands raised wherever you are. We have greeters uh, that are waiting just to see your hand. We welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning at the first service, we were able to welcome home from boot camp one of our own who has, um, who has come home from the Marines on Christmas leave, and uh, he'll soon be leaving, going back. Uh, we always like to welcome any of our servicemen and service women who are here. I know one for sure that is here, and that's uh, our grandson, Corey, who is home from the Navy. Uh, so, Corey, why don't you stand, and we welcome you home. Are there any others that are here that are home on leave or ready to deploy? If you're here, just stand, and so we can recognize you as well. Christmas Eve uh, is a great service, as you know, 6 p.m. We will begin that service. Uh, we... Um, we know it's going to be a great, great service. There is so much uh, that you've already gotten a little taste of that we're going to experience together on Christmas Eve. So plan to get here early, uh, 6 p.m. The service will begin, and it's just going to be a great, great time together. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. There is so little information about the birth of Christ, the details surrounding the birth of Christ in the Gospels. We have virtually nothing in the Gospel of Mark, virtually nothing in the Gospel of John, and so we must depend upon the Gospel of Matthew and Luke to give us the details of how the birth of Christ came to be. Uh, many of the stories that you see uh, that are circulated around this time of the year, some of the details concerning the birth of Christ, uh, many of those are true. Some of those are mythological or legend. But for the most part, all the information that we have comes from those two Gospels. So we have to put that information together and we have to kind of synthesize it and find out exactly where the details are uh, in the birth of Christ. It's interesting to me that also around this time of the year, you're going to see the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and uh, National Geographic and all of those folks uh, poo-pooing the uh, incarnation, poo-pooing the, uh, the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, it's already started. Uh, much of their information is based upon the Gospel of James, which is a third century apocryphal book that is proven to be inaccurate and many of the other apocryphal writings uh, that these so-called experts will use to try to show you or teach you that the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke were written much later than we think they were, uh, much later into the first, maybe even the second century, where a lot of redaction of history took place. That is, where the churches or the church became over-enthusiastic and overzealous about who Christ was, what he came to do, how he was born, and they redacted and reimposed into the scriptures things they say never really happened. Well, that is just not good scholarship. It doesn't stand the test of good scholarship. That's not what this sermon is about. Suffice it to say that we have an accurate early first century writing in two Gospels, giving us the graphic details of how the birth of Christ came to be. And from the earliest of our creeds, from the very earliest of uh, the declarations of faith that we have, creeds that uh, come alongside of the apostolic fathers 
and the post-apostolic fathers. That is, those who were uh, born or those who served the church after the apostles died off in those early generations from the earliest recollections, from the earliest scriptures and creeds that we have available, we continually and, and uh, pointedly hear that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. They did this in order to show that the purpose of his birth, the purpose of his coming, was to suffer. The thing you have to understand most about Christmas is that it was filled with pain, much pain, much sorrow. Mothers who had their babies ripped from their sides by the madman Herod, and those babies were killed in order to uh, rid this world of this so-called Messiah that was to come. And the pain and the heartache that even Mary would experience when she presents this child in the temple. You have that passage in Luke chapter 2, uh, and I believe we need to make much out of what the prophet Simeon says to Mary here. This is one of those areas in which we cannot downplay what is called theologically mater dolorosa, which means the mother of suffering. There is no doubt in Protestant circles we underplay the role of Mary, just as in Catholic circles they overplay the role of Mary. But in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 34, catch this picture of this old man, this old prophet, being given this child with his mother and his stepfather standing by their side. And Simeon blesses them and says to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Imagine being his mother and hearing the prophet say these words. This child is destined to be trouble. Many are going to rise and many are going to fall and the true condition of a man's heart is going to be made known. And when all of this happens, Mary, I want you to imagine that somebody is taking a spear and putting it right through your heart. Mater Dolorosa, the mother of suffering. Now, I believe with all of my heart, we need to catch that as Protestant evangelicals. We need to understand that this girl was probably no more than 14 or 15 years of age. That this girl was told by an angel that she was pregnant. And in that context, culturally, that was anathema. To be pregnant and unmarried was a disgrace. The man you're in love with the man you have been given as your husband, who is engaged to you, and by the way, engagement was just as legal as marriage. To be divorced from marriage was similar to the way in which you would be divorced from engagement. It was a legal dealing. Imagine being told that you are carrying a child that the child is of the Holy Ghost. You have had no relations with any man, anywhere, anytime. And suddenly, this angel appears and tells you that you're pregnant. Now imagine going to your cousin, or your mother, or your father, of which we were t are told very little about in Scripture, but imagine that you go to your brothers and your sisters, likely Mary had many, and you say to them, guess what? I'm pregnant. Well, how did this happen? Were you in the backseat of a car somewhere? Well, no, an angel appeared to me 
and told me that what is in my womb is conceived by the Holy Spirit, that I am to be the mother of Messiah. Yeah, right. Imagine the fear in both of these people, Mary and Joseph, in knowing that it was true. She, probably more than anybody else, and maybe alone, believed that the child in her was conceived supernaturally. And no one believed them. They are put to flight. We know the whole story of Christmas. We see it portrayed and and, uh, rehearsed every Christmas season. But what we fail to see is the heartache and the suffering that came with it. With this little girl. I was watching our girls' chorus up here this morning and thinking to myself, that's how old Mary was. Looking at those young girls up there, that's how old Mary was. She was but a child and yet conceived in her body was the creator of the universe, the very Messiah and Son of God that every little Jewish girl prayed she would one day conceive. Little did they know how this child would be conceived. Now, I believe we need to understand that, that Mary indeed had a tough life. She did not have this life of peaches and cream. She did not have this easy life. In fact, at one point in the ministry of Jesus, she sees things heating up. She sees the opposition getting more intense. She hears bits and pieces. Her other sons and her other daughters come and tell her one day, things are really getting messy out there. They're starting to say things about him like he's the devil. That he's working these miracles by the power of Satan. We hear talk about him getting arrested. And one day while Jesus is preaching, his mother and his brothers and his sisters come and stand at a distance away and send a message in where Jesus was preaching. And they said to him to come out from that crowd, that he is beside himself. This is his family talking, his family saying, that he's gone crazy. Imagine being Mary and knowing what you know about how he was born. Remembering the angelic chorus and the shepherds and the wise men, but also never ever forgetting, forgetting the words of Simeon the prophet. Is this what he meant? Is this the beginning of my pain and my sorrow? Imagine as she raised this child. Imagine as she watched him play ball or work in the carpenter's shop or swing on the swing or play with other children, thinking to herself, what did Simeon mean? What did he mean when he said a a sword was going to pierce my heart? What was Jesus' response when that message came to him? Who is my mother, who are my brothers, who are my sisters. And then down through heaven's telescope, he looked at every one of us who have placed our faith and trust in him, and he said, that is my brother, that is my sister, that is my child. You and I as adopted sons, as adopted daughters, we are the ones he looked at in that moment and made very clear, no, I'm not beside myself. I came for this very purpose. But Mary would suffer. Now, as you know, in this series, we have been talking about the difference between how the Roman Catholic Church views Mary and how we in evangelical Protestantism view Mary. There are similarities to what we believe. For example, we both believe in the virgin birth. We both believe she was a great woman 
that she was the chosen one, predestined by God himself. We, we, we agree that Mary is a person that took a vital and critical role in the process of the coming of Messiah. She birthed this child. On these issues, we agree. But when the church, the Catholic church, begins to take portions of Scripture and by way of what we call the doctrine of amplification, begin to make certain dogmas and doctrines about Mary to be true, we in evangelical Protestantism must object. Now, one of the things that I have been hoping you get out of this series is that you hear very clearly the, the trumpets, if you will, of the Reformation, sola fide, that we're saved by faith alone, not by works lest any man should boast. There is no salvation by works. We do not become justified only after we become sanctified. The order is reversed. Evangelical Protestantism Protestants believe we are justified freely by God's act of grace, sola gracia, through faith, sola fide, because it has been revealed in his word, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And we believe that we are justified, and as the result of that justification, there is a progressive sanctification that takes place in this life and a total sanctification that takes place in the life to come. Catholics reverse the order. But the role of Mary, Ave Maria, which simply means Hail Mary, the role of Mary has been greatly distorted. And all I am attempting to do is not anger Catholics and not embitter you against Catholics, but to teach you that when doctrines and dogmas are formulated by men, we must be able to justify them through the scriptures. If we cannot scripturally defend a doctrine, it is not a doctrine worth holding to. And so when we say sola scriptura, we are saying as evangelical Protestants that the basis for truth, how we decide what is true, is the scripture and the scripture alone. We don't, add, we don't add tradition, and we don't add reason, as the Catholic Church does. They kind of mix the pie up with tradition and reason and scripture, and they say, well, whatever comes out of all of that mixture, under the authority of, uh, or infallibility of a pope, that is what we will call true. Much of what the Catholic Church believes about Mary, in fact, all of what the Catholic Church believes about Mary, with the exception of the virgin birth, with the exception of the fact that she was the mother of Messiah, all of what they teach about her cannot, has not, and never will be supported by Scripture. And that is what will divide us. Mariology has historically divided the church. And I've listed some of those for you, uh, in past sermons, the past two, and today I want to take a look at maybe a couple of more. One is, as I've just, just discussed with you, the doctrine of Mater Dolorosa. Stabat Mater is a 13th century Roman Catholic hymn, and that hymn is attributed to Pope Innocent III. And it is, Stabat Mater is an abbreviation of the first line where it says, at the cross or station keeping. Stabat Mater Dolorosa, the sorrowful mother was standing. The hymn, one of the most powerful of medieval poems, meditates on the suffering of Mary, Jesus Christ's mother, the suffering that she endured during his crucifixion. I got to tell you, I held a child in my arms who was my own. I held his dead body. And I've got to tell you, I can't even begin to fathom what it must have been like for those six long hours to watch him on that cross. 
to watch him suffer and die and scream on that cross, standing there as his mom, powerless to change anything. And that was what was caught in this 13th century hymn. At the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last, through her heart, his sorrow sharing. Now watch as this hymn begins to unfold, because what you're going to see here is that Mary is now, by way of the doctrine of amplification, she is made to be a co-sufferer with Christ in order that she might become, listen closely now, the co-redeemer along with Christ. Through her heart, his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish bearing, and now at length the sword has passed. Oh, how sad and sore distressed was that mother, highly blessed of the soul-begotten one. Christ above in torment hangs. She beneath beholds the pangs of her dying glorious son. Is there one who would not weep, whelmed in misery so deep, Christ's dear mother to behold? By the cross with thee to stay, there with thee to weep and pray, is all I ask of thee to give. For the sins of his own nation, she saw Jesus racked with torment, all his scourges rent. She beheld her tender child, saw him hang in desolation, till his spirit forth he sent. Can the human heart refrain from partaking in her pain, in that mother's pain untold? O thou mother, fount of love, touch my spirit from above. Make my heart with thine accord. Make me feel as thou hast felt. Make my soul to glow and melt with the love of Christ my Lord, holy mother. Pierce me through in my heart each wound renew of my Savior crucified. Let me share with thee his pain who for all my sins was slain, who for me in torments died. Let me mingle tears with thee, mourning him who mourned for me all the days that I may live. Let me to my latest breath in my body bear the death of that dying son of thine. Virgin of all virgins blessed, listen to my fond request. Let me share thy grief divine. Wounded with his every wound, steep my soul till it is swooned in his very blood away. Be to me, O virgin nigh, lest in flames I burn and die in his awful judgment day. Christ, when thou shalt come hence, by thy mother my defense, by thy cross my victory, when my body dies, let my soul be granted the glory of paradise." You begin to see in that early 13th century hymn shades or inklings of Mary as the co-sufferer and Mary as the mediatrix. You know what a mediatrix is? One who intervenes in behalf of you. One who takes your request to her son. One whom you will find always available to you so that when you pray, you might through her influence her son. She becomes the mediator. Later we'll see that she also becomes co-redeemer. In fact, let's take a look at that right now. Mary as the mediatrix, you see it alluded to in Stabat Mater in the prayer of the suffering mother, much of which I agree with. When you read that hymn, I can, I can sing most of that hymn. I can sing it willingly. It's when we begin to ask her to intervene for us so that we might feel the same suffering that she felt so that we might feel the pain of Christ when she becomes the mediatrix. That is when we have to part ground. That's slightly different, me, uh, Mary as the mediatrix, slightly different but closely related to Mary as the co-redeemer of mankind. Co-redeemer. By the way, neither of these dogmas are official dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. There are only certain dogmas that the church has embraced about Mary. 
But others, let's just put it this way. There's a movement, both clergy and lay movement, to make these dogmas official dogmas of the church. Petitions have been signed, etc. Both have been alluded to. These petitions have been signed to have this particular pope declare them as the fifth dogma of Mariology, along with the Immaculate Conception, the Virgin Birth, Theotokos, that means Mary is the mother of God, and Mary's ever virginity. They want to add a fifth one, where Mary, as the mediatrix, actually becomes the co-redeemer along with Christ. Through her suffering, she bore, as she watched her son die, now they are beginning to say that you and I can experience redemption as the result of that. Now, by the way, when folks get mad at me, and we've already had a few, uh, what I have tried to do categorically is to show you what their official literature says. It is not just a Protestant preacher standing up and saying, ah, this is what they believe and we don't believe that. We need to prove that this is what they believe. We need to be able to document this is what they believe. And so without uh, the comments from me per se, we have, for example, Pope Pius X in 1904 in an encyclical called Adiam Illum. This is what he said. Mary carries grace over all in holiness and union with Jesus Christ and has been associated by Jesus Christ in the work of redemption and she is the supreme minister of the distribution of graces. Now what they're referring to there is the grace that is required for you to be saved. She becomes the dispenser or Pope Benedict XV in his apostolic letter called Intersodasia, Sodalica, on March the 22nd in 1918, he said this, for the salvation of mankind, did you get that? For the salvation of mankind, she gave up her rights as the mother of her son and sacrificed him for the reconciliation of divine justice as far as she was permitted to do. Therefore, one can say, she redeemed with Christ the human race. Or Pope Pius XII in 1943. It was she, the second Eve. Remember we talked about her as the second Eve? Who free from all sin. Remember we talked about her as being immaculately conceived? That is, Mary spent her entire life sinless. Original or personal. She was born without a sin nature, that's original, and personal means that she spent the rest of her life never ever committing one sin, and always more intimately united with her son, she offered him on Golgotha to the eternal father for all the children of Adam, sin stained by his unhappy fall, and her mother's rights and her mother's love were included. She offered him. She sacrificed him. As I read the scriptures, one of the things that the Bible tells me is that Jesus Christ was crucified not by Pontius Pilate and not by the Jews. Jesus Christ was delivered up by the predetermined counsel of God. That God put him on that cross. His father nailed him there. His father is the one who gave up rights and privileges. His father is the one who allowed him to become sin for us, the one who knew no sin. There is nothing in Scripture anywhere from Genesis to Revelation that will teach you that anyone other than God sacrificed his son. And so there is no mediator. Or if you look at Pope Pius XII, getting a little more current the reverend, revered mother of God from all eternity joined in a hidden way with Jesus Christ in one and the same decree of predestination. Immaculate in her conception, a most perfect virgin in her divine motherhood, and as the noble associate of the divine redeemer. 
In other words, before the world was ever created, Mary was participating as co-redeemer in this plan of salvation. When I read Ephesians chapter 1, it says to me that the Father, before the foundation of the world, chose the people unto himself. That the Son came to redeem that people. And that the Holy Spirit, by the preaching and teaching of the gospel, calls each individual from the four corners of the earth to that salvation. And that that plan, that holy triumvirate, that Father, that Son, that Holy Spirit, covenanted in what we call the eternal covenant of redemption to save a people. There is nothing in Ephesians, there is nothing in that glorious revelation of the Trinity that tells us that Mary had anything to do with that, for she had not yet been born. Or Pope Paul, John Paul II, up in 1982, Mary, though conceived and born without the taint of sin, that grinds on me. I, I, I hope you sense that. That grinds on me, and I think the mother of Jesus is offended by that. And the reason I say she's offended by that is because in her great song, The Magnificat, she refers to her son as my savior. My savior. If I'm free from sin, if I'm free from the stain of original sin, if I'm free from, the, from all personal sin, then I don't need a savior. I don't need a savior. I've told you this before a gazillion times. Let's make it a gazillion and one. If you want to go to heaven, there's two ways. One way is to take the Ten Commandments and all of its ramifications, and from the time you're born until the time you die, never ever violate one of those laws in any way, shape, or form, whether small or big. Go through your, go through your entire life, never ever commit one sin. Never ever tell a white lie. Never ever think a bad thought. Never ever gossip. Never ever do anything that would offend any of those laws, any of those Ten Commandments. You do that for the entirety of your life, you can go to heaven because you're perfect. Anybody here qualify? Raise your hand so I can call you a liar. <laughs> you agree with me? Amen. Amen. So we're all sinners. Now that's one way to go to heaven. The only other way to go to heaven is to accept the fact that when the Bible says there is but one mediator between God and man, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is no other name given under heaven by which we might be saved except Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man will come unto the Father but by him, that he has come to give us life and life in all of its fullness. And that this is the record, that God has given unto us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And you who have the Son have life. And you who do not have the Son of God do not have life. Because you see, these things were written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, that's the way to heaven. To embrace the fact that you can't get there on your own that you cannot work your way there, no matter how many masses or worship services you go to, no matter how many times you take communion, no matter how many times you enter into a, a confession box and tell the priest everything you've done this past week, no matter how many times you sit here and confess sins in the context of a worship service, none of that. You can be baptized a gazillion times in a gazillion ways, including someone spitting on you, and you will not see glory. You cannot, we cannot work our way to heaven. We cannot keep the law. The law convicts us. We're all guilty. That's why we need grace. That's why if I went through my life, and this is something you need to teach your children, you can go through life absolutely perfect. Never, ever commit one sin, ever. Except one time when you were seven years old, you told your mommy a little white lie. You know what the Bible says about that? You've broken the law. 
Which of the Ten Commandments did you break when you told that little white lie? All of them. Because you see, they rise and they fall as a whole. So that little white lie has made you guilty of the requirement that God has for you to inherit eternal life. So if you've gone through your whole life and you've only told that one little white lie, which, by the way, you know is impossible, but even if it were possible, then you would stand before God and he would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you will have no answer. You will be forever and eternally lost. Now, to me, what I think we need to grasp as best we can as frail human beings is not so much the fact of the child sitting on this side of heaven, but more on what's on the other side of heaven. How holy must our God be that no sin can enter heaven? No sin. How holy is his holiness? Why are these angels constantly throwing down crowns and uh, singing antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Why are they singing that? Why are they singing about the holiness of God? Unless on that side... The holiness of God is what is required. And the only way that can happen is when you stand before that holy God, you hide behind his son. You hide behind his son. You might want to peek over his shoulder and say, I have no reason why you should let me in, but I'm hooked onto him right here. I've given my life to him. He took my sins. He carried my sorrows. He bore my pain. He buried my sins in the grave. He gave me the victory. I am forgiven, not because of what I did, but because of what he did. And we embrace him as Savior. That's when you'll hear the voice. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You have been faithful over a little. Now I will make you ruler over much. There is no co-redeemer. Or Pope Paul II in 1982, let's look at that again. Mary, though conceived and born without the, the taint of sin, participated in a marvelous way in the suffering of her divine son. In order to be the co-redemptrix of humanity. I'm not making this up. This is Pope John Paul II. Or in 1985 in Ecuador, he said this, as she was in a special way close to the cross of her son, she also had to have a privileged experience of his resurrection. In fact, Mary's role as co-redemptrix did not cease with the glorification of her son, which means she still the co-redemptrix. The same pope in 1985, may Mary our protectress, the co-redemptrix, to whom we offer our prayer with great outpouring, make our desire generously correspond to the desire of the Redeemer. You want to be conformed to the image of Christ? It's Mary who will conform you. So they say. Or Pope Benedict XVI, the current pope, when you obediently said yes in the house of Nazareth, you allowed God's eternal son to take your flesh in your virginal womb. Now, I got to stop right there for a second. She didn't allow anything. When the angel came and looked at her face to face, what did the angel say? You're already pregnant. She didn't say, what do you think about this? Or can I have your permission? Or let's figure out the battle plan because now you're a pregnant woman in a culture that would never accept you as unmarried. Did the angel say any of that? No, the angel hailed her 
as being full of grace. And that which was conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Nobody asked her for permission. Nobody said to her, pretty please. God overwhelmed her. And thus to begin history, in history, the work of redemption. You willingly and generously cooperated in that work, allowing the sword of pain to pierce your soul. Can I ask you whether or not Mary had a choice? When Simeon said to her, a sword is going to pierce your heart. Do you think she said, oh, I already knew that. That's old news. And do you think when she stood at the foot of the cross that she allowed this to happen? That it was her will that kept him there? Even Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. And he sweat great drops of blood and begged the Father for another way. But then he told Pilate, it's not you crucifying me. I give my life freely. You don't have power over me. I am the one that has power over you. And he freely lays his life down. You willingly and generously cooperated in that work, allowing the sword of pain to pierce your soul until the supreme hour of the cross when you kept watch on Calvary, standing beside your son who died that we might live. This is Mater Dolorosa. This is the suffering mother that earns her the right to become the co-redeemer by her willingness to give her son on that cross. Now, Spanish, Italian, and Polish bishops, even as I speak today, have encouraged Vatican II along this line of reasoning. Listen to what they say. Mary is co-redemptrix, co-operator in the redemption because, one, as the immaculate conceived mother of God who is full of grace and free of any sin, she assists her son, the son of God, in his redemptive mission. Two, any dogma would likely be based on her assumption into heaven because she is already assumed into heaven. Mary can effectively continue her saving office as advocate and mediatrix of all grace by her constant intercession to obtain for all men the gifts of salvation. And three, any dogma would likely attempt to clarify Catholic teaching that Mary's role is subordinate to and always dependent upon the essential and chief role of her son. I kind of had to get that in there to take care of some of us Protestants that might, might object to this. On February the 8th, 2008, five Roman Catholic cardinals issued a petition asking Pope Benedict XVI to dogmatically declare the Blessed Virgin Mary as both co-redemptrix and as mediatrix. And there's a lay movement, a parallel lay movement called Vox Populi, providing petitions to Rome that can be signed by Roman Catholics at large in their churches and sent to the Pope in the support of this formal dogma as dogma, official dogma of the church. So even though it's not official dogma now, it is throughout their history recorded that Mary is the co-redeemer. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, we find there and in Romans a couple of passages in which the church, the Catholic church, has now said that Mary, because she's sinless, is your model of faith. She is the one you are to emulate. She is the one that you are to look like. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, verse 8, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Catholic Church wants you to know that verse. So do I. They also want you to know Romans 10.17, where it says, Consequently, faith 
comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. I want you to know that passage as well. Or James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. A very confusing passage to, to many people, including Luther, who did not want that book of James in the 66 books of the Bible because of that verse, which seems to say that you're justified by works and not faith alone. But when you carefully analyze that passage and you assess it in the context and you broaden the context to the whole of Scripture, he's simply talking about a faith that works, not a dead faith. We are saved by faith. Well, how do you know you're saved? By your works, by the fruit, by the evidence. If you say there's a root, then there has to be some fruit. This is what James is trying to say. We are not saved by a dead intellectualism, by simply ascending to a creed. There must be evidence that Christ has changed our life. Well, you see, in all three of these books, there is a great emphasis placed upon the fact that Abraham was the father of our faith in the Old Testament. Catholic Church, Jewish people, Christians all agree that the Old Testament figure of faith was Abraham. Abraham was the father of faith. Well, if Abraham was the father of faith, then by way of the doctrine of amplification, we must also conclude that now we need a mother of faith. If Abraham was the father of faith, then we also need a mother of faith. So she becomes our mother in the order of grace, as they refer to it. Look at what is said in the catechism. Her role in relation to the church and to all humanity goes still further. In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is a mother to us in the order of grace. Well, that's how we refer to Abraham, as a father of faith as the one who in the Old Testament modeled faith. So in the New Testament, we have Mary who becomes as Abraham was, but now the mother of faith. Or this motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering, ben uh, wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, mediatrix. You know, I'm imagining that I'm a woman, 13, 14 years old, and an angel appears to me. First of all, I've just wet my pants. <laughs> and so would you. I fall down on my face. The angel tells me as a little girl, you're pregnant. And immediately you begin to play the VCR. No, 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 mm-mm, no, that didn't happen. No, Joseph and I, uh-uh. When Mary dropped to her face, and said, be it done unto me according to thy word. She did so in the same way that you and I would. Angel, you've asked me to jump. I'm going to ask you how high on the way up. I'm not going to debate this because I can't. I'm going to hide my face from you. I'm going to consent because I have no choice but to consent. Nor would I want to choose not to consent. You have now done something in me and to me that cannot be explained by human reasoning. And I, like you, would be ducking and not thinking to myself, well, now the whole plan of human history rests on whether or not I agree to this. 
The whole plan of redemption is going to be determined by whether or not I say, be it done unto me according to your word. I'm going to duck. That's why when we get to heaven, guess what we're doing? We're throwing down crowns, all of our earthly glory, and we're hiding our faces. When you read in Ezekiel about the seraphim and the cherubim who cover their eyes, I want to tell you something, friends. If they're covering their eyes, we're going to be covering our eyes because of the holiness of this great God we serve. And it's going to have absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you agreed to it. It's going to have everything to do with how he changed your heart so that you would agree to it. Well, they go one step further. Mary now becomes the bride that Solomon was speaking of in the Song of Solomon. You know that great book in the Old Testament uh, where, where you have this love, uh, this, this uh, explicit, very, very explicit picture of a man and a woman in an intimate relationship with each other. Very graphic, very specific, uh, very mindful of the fact that the church, who is the bride of Christ, is married to the bridegroom, who is Christ. And so that book of Solomon becomes, that song of Solomon becomes a picture of the intimacy you and I have with Christ. But again, by way of the doctrine of amplification, the bride in the song of Solomon, as you and I know it, is the church. But by amplification, the bride in the Song of Solomon becomes Mary. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. By the way, this is where the concept of the Black Madonna came from. You will find many, many statues and art forms of Mary portrayed as a black woman which, by the way, white people, more than likely she was. If you haven't noticed, Middle Eastern people are very dark. Uh, Middle Eastern people, when they sit in the sun long enough, are very, very dark. In fact, back in our day, when Sharon and I were dating at the end of the summer, people would look at us and think that we were a mixed couple because I, was, I got so dark. Middle Eastern people are dark. So the pictures that we have of this Italian Mary with these blue eyes and this blonde hair is likely not true. She was probably a very, very dark woman. Well, the translation out of the Hebrew of that passage in the Song of Solomon where it says, dark am I yet lovely, it's really black I am and beautiful. That's the literal translation out of the Hebrew. And that's where all the art forms of the black Madonna came from. But by way of amplification, that one verse... That one verse, by way of the doctrine of amplification, Mary has now become the person that's being referred to in the Song of Solomon as the bride. Again, all generations will call me blessed. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic in Christian worship. The church rightly honors the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. From the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title of Mother of God to those to whose protection the faithful fly in all of their dangers and needs. This very special devotion differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate word and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit and greatly fosters this adoration. The liturgical feast dedicated to the Mother of God and Mary in prayer, such as the Rosary, an epitome of the whole gospel expresses the devotion to the Virgin Mary. Or, as they say, after speaking of the church, her origin, mission, and destiny, we can find no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. In her, we contemplate what uh, the church already is in her mystery on her own pilgrimage of faith and what she will be in the homeland at the end of her journey. There, in the glory of the Most High, most holy and undivided trinity, in the communion of all the saints, 
the church is awaited by the one she venerates as mother of her Lord and as her own mother, the mother of the church. In the meantime, the mother of Jesus, in the glory which she possesses in body and soul in heaven, is the image and beginning of the church as it is to be perfected in the world to come. Likewise, she shines forth on earth until the day of the Lord shall come, a sign of certain hope and comfort to the pilgrim people of God. Since the Virgin Mary's role is a mystery, in, in the mystery of Christ and the Spirit has been treated, it is fitting now to consider her place in the mystery of the church. The Virgin Mary is acknowledged and honored as being truly the mother of God and of the Redeemer. She is clearly the mother of the members of Christ, since she has by her charity joined in bringing about the birth of believers in the church who are members of its head, Mary, mother of Christ, mother of the church. Well, friends, I believe Mary would turn over in her grave, and uh, that's if she were in her grave. According to Roman Catholic teaching, she isn't because she never died. But I believe this does great injustice to this godly woman, this woman whose heart was ripped out of her chest. When she saw what her son did, to even think or even imagine that somehow or another she's a co-redeemer with him would cause her to throw up. And yet this is the clear teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that continues for centuries to divide us. We are not to pray to her. One lady I, she told me this morning, she used to be a Catholic and we were taught as Catholics, uh, I was taught that we are to pray to the saints, we are to pray to Mary, because God's too busy for us. And besides that, um, Jesus has a lot of influence, but Mary has a lot of influence over him. And that's what we were taught. And we obeyed. And consistently, even after I became a Christian, even after I left the Catholic Church, I had a lot of trouble giving up Mariology. I mean, who wants to deny their mother? Uh, but as I studied the scriptures and learned more of what the Word of God teaches, I realized that she wasn't just an ordinary woman. She was indeed the mother of Messiah. But she is not our co-redeemer. And she is not our mediator. This lady said to me this morning, she said, of all these intercessory prayers, no wonder my prayers never got answered when I was growing up. <laughs> and I agree with her. There is but one mediator between God and man. Hebrews, if you study the book of Hebrews, you can't miss it. You study it again and again and again. What does it say? Christ is our high priest. Christ is our great high priest. Christ is our mediator. Christ is the one who shed his blood. Christ is the one who conquered sin and death. Christ is the one who secures your salvation. Christ is the one who fills you with his Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who day by day sanctifies you, preparing you for glory. Christ is the one who will come again and judge the heavens and the earth. Christ is the one who will reward you. Christ is the one who is your eternal God and Father. Christ is the one to whom you must plead. Christ is the one to whom you must pray. Christ is the one to whom you must give all the glory. No earthly human being warrants that kind of praise. No one in heaven is casting their crowns down before St. Peter. No one's casting their crowns down before Mary. No one is acknowledging infallibility of anybody in heaven. All are casting their crowns at the feet of the one alone, the one alone who is perfect and complete and infallible, the one alone who secured your salvation, the one whose birth at this time of the year we celebrate. That is Christ. That is what we believe. Sola fide. Sola gracia, sola scriptura, Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone is your Savior. Would you stand and join me in prayer, please? Into that marvelous name, O oh God, we come to you today. We've had a great time in worship here this morning. Thank you for bringing us here safely. We don't take that for granted, or at least we shouldn't. We pray, Father, that we would fall in love with you all over again. 
Like the church at Ephesus, many of us, Lord, have lost our first love. The passion isn't there. The glow isn't there. During this time of the year, Father, may we see you again for who you are. The holiness, the majesty, the power. With just a word, all things were created by you and all things were created through you and all things were created unto you. With just a word. Lord, help us to at least begin to try to fathom what that means so that we may rejoice in this undeserved, unmerited favor, unmerited grace that we call salvation. Now may the grace of God, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore.